It is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 6th of June, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. The town of Greenwich was founded on July 18, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, the town of Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You know what? You're a part of our history. (laughs) I congratulate you. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Incorporated, promoting environmentally responsible landscape architecture, the Ambassador Museum in the United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, we've got a great show for you today, so let's get started. Coming up on today's show. Well, it's the 6th of June, 2023 show. Welcome. In Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our visit will take us to Italian Villa, once located at 180 Otter Rock Drive at Bellhaven Place. Its owner was Stanley B. Tyler. The house was designed by Greenwich native Frederick G.C. Smith, who also designed Greenwich Hospital on Parsonage Road that was gifted to the town by Robert Bruce. It was built in 1899 and demolished in 2017. This story was made possible by Matt Bernard, author of Victorian Summer, the Historical Houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. On History from Home, you'll learn about a summer 2022 excavation on the grounds of the Bush Holly House campus in Coscob by Dean McKenna. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, columnist Erwin Edwards took his readers in 1922 on a journey. Byram River, what it was, what it is now, and might be. There has rarely been a shortage of quote-unquote serious matters confronting the people of Greenwich, Connecticut. One of those, about a century ago or so, was the tooting of whistles of locomotive trains engaged by engineers who, quote, seemed to take pleasure in keeping up as regularly and constantly as they passed through town. We continue to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department on crimes and misdemeanors. On today's show, we'll take you back over a century ago with the arson and assault case of James and Jenny Watt, who had, quote, woven themselves into a com- complicated story that might well furnish a plot for a Conan Doyle detective story, unquote. And in other historical news, you'll hear about the founding of the Edgewood Country Club, which no longer exists, the purchase of Betts Academy by Brunswick School, and more as Greenwich, Connecticut's history continues to unfold. My friends, there's always lots to see, to do, and to to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of that town, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. I'm going to have all this for you and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. 
Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office, at 203-485-7595. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard, is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history from the Gilded Age. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research, taking its readers to the development of Belhaven Park during America's 
Gilded Age. On today's show, our voyage to Bellhaven's past will take us to Italian Villa. Its principal owner was S.P. Tyler. It was built in 1899. The address was 180 Otterock Drive at Bellhaven Place. The architect was Frederick G.C. Smith. Sadly, it was demolished in 2017. An Italian villa broke the habit of putting up either English country or American vernacular cottages. We assume that this house was built either as relocation to a more modern residence or perhaps as an investment property for Mr. Tyler, who previously resided at 114 Glenwood Drive, a shingle-style cottage that he had constructed in 1889 overlooking the sound. The two houses could not be more different and reflect not only the changing aesthetics of the nation, but how that trickled down to individual tastes in home design over the preceding 10-year period. The year of its construction, 1899, coincides with a classicism trend that began in the 1890s and would inform many of the new mansions built between 1900 and 1920. Stanley B. Tyler's villa had white stucco walls, a low, shallow-hipped, red-painted wood-shake roof with bottle-green shutters, making it a rustic example of the form. It would have been perfectly at home on the shores of Lake Como. Italian villas should not be confused with the Italian-style homes popular in the United States from about 1840 to 1880. These were typically tall and boxy with flat roofs, square cupolas, and lots of ornamental detail. They looked a bit like wedding cakes, indeed. Among the house's notable details were small pebble stone kilns at the wall junctures, triangular pediments over the ground floor windows, and a properly Italian wooden arbor off the rear. The villa also had various small porticos and a large open terrace in the rear, terraces having begun to replace the shaded piazzas so common in country home design until about 1900. Tyler Cottage was laid out resolutely lengthwise, long and narrow rather than squarish, and deep as was the general custom of the earlier homes in Belhaven. Its kitchen was on the ground floor, a change from the usual below-stairs kitchen, where a cook and staff prepared the family meals. Tyler Cottage's floor plan was exceedingly simple. A main hall with the drawing room on one side and the dining room and kitchen on the other, all with ten-foot ceilings. Upstairs, there were three family bedrooms, a sitting room, a sewing room, and two maids' bedrooms. The interior did not depart from the norm, and the sumptuousness of its detail with columns having elaborately carved capitals, paneled wainscoting, and rich wooden moldings and mantelpieces. It differed in that all these details were painted china white, giving the villa a fresh, bright, airy feel. Stanley Tyler, who lived from 1842 to 1906, a native of Richmond, Virginia, was independently wealthy and said to be related to John Tyler, who lived from 1790 to 1862, the 10th president of the United States. Tyler worked as chief auditor of the Mutual Life Insurance Company on Nassau Street in New York. He hired Frederick G.C. Smith, a Greenwich native not long out of Cooper Union, to design his villa. 
Smith's reputation developed quickly among the wealthy. He designed the new Greenwich Hospital on Parsonage Road in 1903, which philanthropist Robert Bruce presented to the, to the town as a gift. Later, he designed several palatial mansions in Greenwich, including one for Robert P. Noble, chief executive of the Lifesavers Candy Company. Tyler died at the age of 64 in 1906, seven years after completing his villa. He slipped and fractured his skull on a marble staircase at the Murray Hill Baths in New York. The house, prior to its recent demolition, presented itself as a strangely offbeat colonial. In the 1920s, a previous owner removed the shallow, red-stained wood shingle roof and replaced it with a reconfigured hip roof, similar to that found on its adjoining carriage house. This allowed a full floor of additional bedrooms to be placed under the newly expanded dormers. The house was further colonialized by the replacement of the front and service porches with infill colonial entry treatments. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Bellhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library system. You can go to your favorite or nearest branch of the Greenwich Library or you can go online to greenwichlibrary.org. Well, my friends, why not consider purchasing a copy of this wonderful book about Bellhaven? It's a great book, and it's one I strongly recommend. Visit GreenwichHistory.org. You can also call 203-869-6899, or if you wish, visit your favorite book vendor. best-kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. 
On March 8th, the Greenwich Historical Society welcomed visitors to its new current exhibition, Sports More Than Just a Game, presenting an inclusive and insightful history of athletics, sports culture, and celebrated athletes in Greenwich and surrounding communities. The exhibition, supported in part by grants from Connecticut Humanities and the First Republic Bank, tells a fuller history of local athletes, teams, and competitions with artifacts and memorabilia on view from museum and private collections. Now, coming up, let's see, on the 18th of June, Discover Greenwich Scavenger Hunt will be held. That's the sports edition. Again, that is on Sunday, June 18th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. That sounds like a lot of fun. Also, I have a great news for you. Music on the Lawn is back. This is on Thursdays. It's free to members of the Greenwich Historical Society. The site opens 5.30 p.m. and the concert begins at 6.30 and concludes at 8 p.m. The upcoming one will be on June 8th. That's coming Thursday and that will feature Chasing Romeo. Then next Thursday will be, oh no, I'm sorry, it'll be June 22nd, will be Billy and the Showman. Sorry about that. Um, what else is uh, coming up? Uh, Tavern Garden Markets is back. Please mark your uh, your uh, calendars for Wednesdays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, and that will be on, the next one will be on June 14th. That is something definitely to, to look forward to. So my friends, you can learn more about these and other programs offered by the Greenwich Historical Society by going to GreenwichHistory.org or you can call the Greenwich Historical Society at 203 869 6899. You know, I have to confess that um, <laughs> my idea of a fun time on a day off is um, rather unusual. I happen to enjoy exploration. I love history, of course. Uh, as you might imagine, being the host of, um, of this show and coming from the family that I do. But um, one of the things uh, that uh, I like to do is that I like to go on uh, archaeological expeditions <laughs> just because of of the sheer joy of it, um, the joy of discovery and um, inquiry and so on and so forth. Um, on the Greenwich Historical Society's website, there is a, a section called um, History from Home. You'll find it under the Library and Archives section of the um, menu at the top of the page. And um, I wanted to share with you um, a piece that was written by Dean McKenna about finds from summer 2022 excavation. That would have been last year, of course. Um, and uh, there are some nice pictures here, and I uh, uh, direct your attention uh, to it. It's quite interesting. And um, Dean McKenna's piece goes as follows. During June 2022, while digging a trench for a new drainage pipe, construction workers uncovered dozens of objects that had been buried under the lawn of the Greenwich Historical Society. The objects were gathered and cleaned by members of the staff and two Greenwich High School interns before being catalogued and researched. Unfortunately, any dating of the objects has to be given in a broad range due to the fact that the order in which the objects were removed from the ground was not recorded and the surprising lack of any maker's marks or labeling on any of the pottery fragments, meaning that there are no obvious provenances of the objects found. Provenances means by the origins of, um, of the objects found. 
Despite this, there are still many things that can be learned from the objects about how people on our campus's site were living in the 18th and 19th centuries. Below are some of the highlights of the discoveries. The first one uh, that is noted here is the red ware jug. The most complete piece of pottery was found. This jug is in very good condition, considering the centuries it has spent underground after being thrown away. The jug has a 51 centimeter diameter and is 20 centimeters tall, and is very likely an example of locally made redware, the style of ceramic named after the color of clay after firing. The jug was thrown on a potter's wheel, but is very asymmetrical and has traces of the potter's fingers where they shaped the clay. The thickness of the ceramic itself is also quite varied throughout the body of the piece, and the glaze is not applied evenly either. The jug does not have any maker's marks or any other identifying information on it at all. All these details suggest that this piece was made cheaply and quickly, likely for an average household's daily use, likely for holding beer or water. American redware. During the digging, several pieces of American redware were found, including the piece pictured here, and it's on the website, the largest and only decorated piece uh, amongst them. Redware it was an incredibly popular style of ceramic that was made and used extensively from the mid-18th century through, the, through to the late 19th century all over the northern United States. The fragment that is featured here is likely from the first half of the 19th century and likely comes from a serving dish or pie plate. The exterior is unglazed, while the interior has a reddish-brown glaze with wavy yellow lines traveling around the diameter of the piece. This piece of redware was likely made nearby either in Connecticut or New York and would have been a common sight in kitchens of the rich and poor alike. In Figure 3, several replicas of this pottery style can be seen in the Bush Holly House's colonial kitchen. This is Jaspe, J-A-S-P-E apostrophe, pottery. Uh, I, I hope I pronounced that properly for you. This fragment of yellow glazed pottery with a brown polka dot bears a close resemblance with a style of ceramics from 19th century France called Jaspe ware. Jaspe pottery originates in the Sauve Savoy. S-A-V-O-I-E region of southeastern France and typically dates to the late 19th century to the early 20th century. While attempting to identify this shard, a remarkable close match to its decoration was found on an auction site. What this suggests is that either someone living on the historical society's site purchased an imported French ceramic piece or that there was an American potter making pieces inspired by Jaspe Pottery. There is no easy way to definitively say where the piece was made, but it remains a beautiful piece. There's a section here on creamware with hand-painted flour, and it goes as follows. This fragment of pottery comes from the base of a plate or dish decorated with a thin, leafy branch with a small blue flower at its end. From the small amount of decoration that is on this shirt, and its cream-colored fabric, color of the interior clay, this piece can be identified as belonging to a style known as sprig-painted ware. Sprig-painted ware was a popular style of pottery from the 1830s to 1870s when potters were looking to produce 
cheaper products that required less material and time in production. This led them to move from the more intricate fuller styles of porcelain decoration to a minimalist style that used thin branches or sprigs and simple floral designs. We have a section here on stoneware objects. Fragments of stoneware objects make up a significant portion of the ceramics found during the excavation, but none have the distinctive maker's mark or, attached, or label attached to them, which greatly hinders identification. Despite the lack of any distinctive details on these fragments, it is worth discussing this type of ceramic due to its importance as a domestically produced ceramic in America from the 17th century onwards. Stoneware is made from specific types of clay, often multiple sources mixed together, that is then fired at about 1200 C degrees, that would be Celsius, to become glass-like in structure. After firing, it is both non-porous and non-absorbent and has a hardness close to steel. Deposits of the clay used for stonework can be found in Long Island and around Bayonne, New Jersey, and would have been transported to kilns in Connecticut, where they would be shaped and fired in large production sites. Stoneware was a cheap ceramic and was used in very utilitarian ways. Many of the fragments found on our site come from bottles and jars that would have held a wide variety of products and sold across the region, the properties of stoneware making it perfect material for long-distance trade. Effort by Vank Bottle is the next section. This is interesting. A number of broken glass bottles were found on the site, most of which would have been used for transporting beer and wine. Although the bottles are black glass bottles, the glass is actually a dark green color when light is shown through it, which are a common find in 18th and 19th century sites in both the Americas and Europe when this type of glass was relatively cheap to produce and a popular choice for merchants as the color would help protect wine spoiling by blocking light. The, the example featured here is of special interest as it has a glass label still attached to it and reads Everett Byvank, and that's spelled B-Y-V-A-N-C-K, Lund, 1 degrees, 1771. Having the label on a bottle is very exciting as it is not only helps date the object but also provides an opportunity to find out more about where the bottle came from and what its use was in the time or at the time. A man named on the label, Everett Byvank, was a Dutch-American businessman from New York City who lived from 1705 to 1781. During a research, we may have been unable to uncover exactly, or why exactly, he had his name on a beer or wine bottle, but another bottle with his label was uncovered during excavations under New York City's town hall, which suggests he owned a decently-sized business selling alcohol. Byvank is recorded as fleeing from his home on Corlier's Hook, Manhattan, during the Revolutionary War and taking his family, possessions, and enslaved people to house in Horseneck, giving us a clear link to Greenwich and a possible explanation for why his bottle wound up behind the storehouse. And then finally, we have a section with bones with butchery marks. Along with ceramics and glass bottles, the other type of object found on the site were animal bones. Animal bones are one of the most common finds during excavations of domestic sites, and our lawn is no different. 
The bones found come from cows and sheep, and a number have clear signs of being cut by a butcher and or people who were eating the meat. Bones, along with other finds, provide archaeologists and historians with a lot of information on the economic status of the people who were living on a site, as well as hinting as individuals and families, personal dietary preferences and culture. They are therefore a very important find, albeit slightly less glamorous than other artifacts. Without a more organized excavation or using scientific dating methods, it is difficult to tell exactly how old the bones found on the site are, but it is likely that they date from sometime in the late 19th or early 20th centuries. These newly excavated objects were photographically documented as part of a three-year grant funded project from the Institute of Museum and Library Services. The Greenwich Historical Society's archival team is currently working on digitizing over 20,000 images across multiple collections, ensuring their preservation and accessibility for current and future Greenwich residents. A backlog of unprocessed collections is also being organized and described to make them accessible to patrons and researchers. This work is made possible by the Institute of Museum and Library Services Museums for America grant. And that was all written by Dean McKenna. And you can read this for yourself and see the pictures. Uh, They're quite colorful and uh, instructive on the Greenwich Historical Society's website, which is greenwichhistory.org. Go to the Library and Archives section and scroll down until you find History from Home. And look at the other stories that are there, too. They're quite remarkable. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Needless to say, and truth be told, there is never a shortage of serious matters confronting the people of Greenwich, Connecticut. (laughs) It's been this way for a long time. It's certainly this way now, especially if you um, monitor some of the social media places and um, uh, read the newspapers and, um, and whatnot. There's a serious matter for everything, it seems. Well, this was a serious matter from the year 1908, May 2nd exactly. Uh, This was published in the Greenwich Graphic at that time. And yes, this is a serious matter. And it was about the whistling nuisance, a menace to health. Tooting whistles of locomotives in freight yards causes much distress. (laughs) Health officer may be appealed to. Um, I don't think you have to worry about that today. But again, this is 1908. Some time ago, complaint took vigorous form among those Greenwich residents located nearest the New Haven railroad tracks against the internally distracting noise of tooting whistles, which locomotive engineers seem to take pleasure in keeping up as regularly and consistently as they pass through the town. 
More particularly was it done by the freight engineers in the early morning hours, and the tooting took the form of four quick and piercing blasts, keeping up kept up rather by each engineer as his train stopped here to do switching in the yard adjoining the station. Months ago, when the complaint reached the superintendent's office with more than usual emphasis, there seemed to be a cessation of this continuous tooting, and feelings of relief and thankfulness were growing among the Belhaven, Field Point Road, Steamboat Road, Railroad, and Prospect Street residents, residents that the excruciating nuisance had been considerably stopped. Especially were these feelings accented, among those who, coming here for the quiet and rest usually afforded in country and residence communities, had been much annoyed and in sickness seriously disturbed to the point of nervous breakdown. <laughs> but latterly, all anticipations have been destroyed, for the tooting nuisance has been renewed and even increased. And complaints are to take form once again with the intention of reaching the superintendent with greater force than before, in the hope that a final quietus will be put upon it. The switching can be carried on with this abomination eliminated, and the demand that it shall be done is to be made just as strenuous as human effort can devise. <laughs> there is another feature of noise discomfort against which complaint is just, and this is in this is the siren for horn or foghorn, I stand corrected, if it can be called a lesser nuisance than the tooting whistles of the passing locomotives, this is for the simple reason that it is not so constant. With the lifting of the fog, it increases. When in use, it is a nerve-wracking screech that holds its own securely, second only to the tooting whistle. The ordinary foghorn or whistle is necessary, a a proper protection to navigators of the sound and its regularly repeated alarm signal serves all responsible needs. It has been the occasion of much conjecture why the government permits the siren nuisance, adding little, if anything, in the way of protection. It does add immeasurably to disturb the quiet and rest of about everyone within reach of its five-mile minutes, and the call for its disuse is full of reason and entitled to all its urgency. Let the efforts to put an end to the tooting whistles and the siren foghorn soon accomplish their laudable purpose to relieve human suffering. Patriot's Day is no longer celebrated uh, nearly as widely as it was, uh, but um, the 19th of April of any given year was uh, celebrated as Patriot's Day, and it uh, commemorated the Battle of Concord and Lexington in the um, American Revolution. A flag raising was held um, at uh, Greenwich Academy, and um, it, uh, it was published in the Greenwich News on April 26 of 1907 of that year. Um, the 19th of April was 132nd anniversary of the Battle of Concord and Lexington, the first armed resistance offered by the American colonists to British authorities. It was celebrated at the Greenwich Academy with appropriate exercises. Those students marched from the school to the home of H.B. Stevens on Maple Avenue to take part in the flag raising in honor of the occasion. 
The flag was one which Mr. Stevens had made especially at the mills formerly owned by Benjamin F. Butler. The pole he had brought uh, from Maine, where he goes on a hunting and fishing excursion each year. The flag was hoisted to the peak by two students of the academy, after which America was sung. Mr. Stevens made a short address to the children, and a prayer was made by Reverend Dr. Selden, and he would have been the uh, senior pastor of the Second Congregational Church. There was another story that day, um, and this caught my eye. It was called Darkness at Belhaven, and it goes as follows. Moonlight and starlight have been apostrophized and dilated upon by the poets from time memorial, and the people of Belhaven no doubt fully appreciate their delights, but to depend upon them entirely for street illumination, as though Belhavenites have to in early spring and the fall is a trifle too much of a good thing. The Belhaven Land Company, which furnishes the light for the roads, leave the early arrivals in the spring and the late stayers, in the fall, to depend upon heaven's luminaries for light, that would mean starlight <laughs> in its own way, it would seem as if the company would encourage people to come as soon and stay as long as possible, and to that end provide light as much of the year as is needed. At present, street lighting does not begin until May 1st. Well, how about that? Um, I have a friend of mine who just um, experienced a, um, a, a false alarm. His uh, fire alarm at his house went off by accident, and uh, unfortunately, he um, was uh, <laughs> was charged for it. Oh well. Um, but this is a story also of the um, of the same time, uh, and um, it is about fire alarm system to be inspected. A false alarm caused by wire trouble in the storm of Tuesday evening brought out pretty nearly all the firemen of the Amber Jerome and Volunteer Fire Companies. The alarm which was rung in was quite uncertain, and while the men were getting into their rubber coats, boots, and hats, and the horses were hitched into the hose wagons, officers were endeavoring to locate the fire by telephone. No fire could be found anywhere, and after the companies were held in readiness for some time, it was decided that the wire trouble was the cause of alarm. The warden and board of Burgesses, that would be in Greenwich, of course, have just authorized the fire committees to have an inspection of the fire alarm system and to put it in order where this is necessary. This is to be done next week, and then there will be less of the constantly recurring bother of turning out for wire trouble alarms. And again, that, that dates from um, April of um, 1907. That must have been quite a challenging thing uh, to, um, to be ready for back in, um, in those days. And then I have one more thing, another short story that I'll mention. This is called a Prevented Auto Disaster. Harry Raymond showed great presence of mind in averting a probable smash-up in front of the post office Wednesday afternoon. George Lauder Jr.'s car had been left in front of the Greenwich Bakery with the engine working and in some way the brake became loosened and the car started to back down the incline. When in front of the post office, it was going at a pretty good clip and was turning across the street. Several people standing near thought that the chauffeur was aboard and was backing the car into Allen, Aston, and Company's garage. Just as the, star, the car passed Raymond, he saw that it was working alone and was in danger of running into other cars or smashing itself against the curb. He sprang in and applied the brake, bringing the car to a standstill in the middle of the street. 
Mr. Lauder's chauffeur said that he had left the car securely braked, but that some children must have been fooling with the machinery. As the engine was working, the brake may have become loosened by the jar, allowing the car to start. It was a century ago this month, um, that would be specifically June 15, 1923, that a new country club was announced in Greenwich. It no longer exists, but many of you might recognize the name anyway, and that would be the Edgewood Country Inn. At one time, there was a rather large uh, hotel by the name of Edgewood Inn uh, close by, um, and um, of course, you probably know of Edgewood Avenue. So, um, Anyway, this story uh, dates from, um, again, the year 1923, this month, and um, it goes as follows. New course opened by Mr. Dorr, that's spelled D-O-R-R, to Greenwich residents. Mr. Brian Ripley Dorr of Calhoun Drive will open to residents of Greenwich Township on Saturday, June 23rd, a nine-hole golf course recently constructed on the tract of land purchased by him adjacent to the Edgewood Inn. A club is in process of formation to be called the Edgewood Country Club which satisfactorily applicants may become members without the payment of initiation fees or dues. Well, that's unusual. A green fee, which proceeds of which will be used to maintain and extend the course, will amount to $1.50 per day, except Saturdays and Sundays, when the charge will be $2 and $3 respectively. A weekly rate of $8 may be obtained $30 per month or $75 for the season. An additional, an additional club is greatly needed in Greenwich, as anyone who has visited the congested local courses on Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays will testify. An examination of the waiting lists will confirm his impression. While inexpensive, the membership is to be carefully selected. Weekly dinner dances will be held at the Edgewood Inn, and the ballroom will be temporarily be used as club headquarters. As professional, Mr. Louis Giappetti, at present in charge of one of the leading Southern clubs, has been engaged. Mr. Giappetti has an established local reputation both as a golfer and as an instructor, holding the record for all time, 67, on the Greenwich Country Club course. His pupils testify without exception that his capacity and courtesy as an instructor. Lessons at $2 each will be commenced on Monday, June 18, and may now be arranged for in advance by application to Mr. Doerr. The natural beauty of the course is unsurpassed, laid out as it is on very high ground in the midst of one of the finest residential sections of Greenwich. The view from Casino Hill, where the ninth hole is located, is really inspiring, overlooking, as it does, many of the most beautiful estates in Brookside and Rock Ridge, with the Sound and Long Island in the distance. Tees are frequently shaded by virgin timber, older than the nation itself. A chain of artificial lakes is under construction, so located as to form hazards of exceptional charm. Several of the holes are short, averaging about 200 yards in length, but some of them are fairly tricky, quote-unquote. The longer holes will warrant healthy drives by the best golfers. 
Most of the short holes are temporary, but construction work is to be carried on all summer. And next year, a course of full championship length may be ready. Greens and fairways are being improved as fast as possible by Mr. Doerr, with the assistance and advice of an experienced golf engineer. Membership will, of course, be limited because of the size of the course and desire to avoid congestion. Application blanks may be obtained by writing to Mr. Ripley Door, Calhoun Drive, Greenwich, Connecticut. And again, this dates from a century ago this month, June 15, 1923. Greenwich Life as it is and was was a column published in the Greenwich News and Graphic in the early years of the 20th century. This column is by Erwin Edwards, and it is about uh, the Byron River. Um, this is of special interest to uh, my uh, primary uh, sponsor and advertiser here on the Greenwich and Town for All Season Show podcast, and that would be Mr. Peter Alexander. And so it is my pleasure to share this with you. Uh, so for those of you that live in the Byron River area, I hope that you will be paying attention. Very interesting um, missive about, um, about its, uh, its history. The Byron River, what it was, what it is now and might be, is the title of this column. And it goes as follows. Porchester has no skating pond, much to the regret of the young people in that, of that vicinity. Porchester might have such place very easily if it cared enough about it to make the effort. Right at the very door is where the skating pond could be made, but how? By throwing a dam across the Byram River. If that river flowed through some parts of Europe, near or through a city or town, as is the case of the Byram, it would be made into a beautiful stream, and along its banks would be little private pleasure parks. Those little parks could be made very inviting with lawns and gardens graded down to meet the river, with arbors and trees and shrubbery and statuary and seats and all that graces landscape gardening. And so it is now. From being a backyard unsightly stream, it could be converted into a front yard river, enticing and beautiful with pleasure grounds around its borders. Porchester and East Porchester, that would be Byram, too, hardly realize what it would mean if the Byram River was beautified and its banks made enjoyable. Hardly realize and cannot imagine what beneficial results would follow in the value of property alone, to say nothing of the importance that would attach to it in other ways for the villages of Porchester and East Porchester. Not only would that pond afford meaning uh, afford means of indulging in winter sports, but in the summertime with such body of water pleasures incident to that season of the year could be enjoyed. However, this article was not intended to set forth the advantages that might accrue if the Byron River was under development and culture, so to say, but to give just an outline of what it was and is today. But first, it should be said that there was a dam across the Byram near the East Porchester Bridge some years ago. At that time, the river was really nothing more, nothing less than an open sewer, and the stench arising from it was at times unbearable and permeated the air for miles around. 
How those people lived along its banks in those days was a mystery, and it was so filthy and polluted. This dam was washed away in a freshet about 15 years ago or longer. Then the health authorities of Porchester and Greenwich, so far as was possible, prohibited sewers from emptying into it, and other nuisances along its banks were abated to some extent, but not wholly. There is no doubting it that if a dam was built across the stream about where the old one was, that the body of water so impounded under sanitary conditions and laws strictly enforced could be made clean and clear and become a thing of beauty and would enhance greatly the property along its banks and Portchester and East Portchester would be benefited as well. That the Byron River must have been a very beautiful stream in the days of the Indians can be easily imagined. That was before the trees along its course were cut down and its water defiled by sewage. It can never become what it was, but it can be made far more attractive instead of being repulsive as now. It remains only for Greenwich, meaning East Porchester and Porchester, to join hands and to start out with a determination to improve its condition. The Byron River and the Mianus River are brothers. They both rise in New York State and from the same source, a spring or marsh in Middle Patent, or near there. They take different courses, however, and though opposed to each other. The Mianus turns to the east and the Byram flows to the south, but both reach the Sound on their way at about the same time, but the Mianus takes a little longer route. Both run for a short distance in New York State. It is, in its twisting and turnings, the Mianus touches three towns, Middle Patent, Stamford, and Greenwich. The Mianus gradually turns in its circuitous course to the southeast and then makes almost a right angle and runs from there on directly south. The distance from the source of the two streams to the sound as the crows fly must be 10 miles. In their twisting course, they traverse 15 miles or more. Years ago, that is before steam assumed way and or assumed sway i stand corrected and when greenwich was a struggling colony these were busy rivers with never an idle moment in their running they played a most important part in the building up of greenwich they both were well harnessed by dams and were made to turn the wheels of many mills they gave the power to grist mills cider mills Law sawmills, an iron foundry, a wire mill, a paper mill, a woolen mill, bolted nut factories, telephones and telephone supplies, a hat mill, in fact most every kind of a mill at one time or another were along their banks and several on each stream. Thus perhaps it can be realized of what importance they were and how they served the needs and purpose of the settlers and how greatly they helped in the town's development. We started out more particularly to tell of the Byram River. It turned at North Greenwich, the wheel of an old historic grist mill, the only one still standing of the five or more that did the grinding of the corn and wheat and other cereals for the colonists. It is now a tobacco factory. The Byram coursed on down and furnished the power for the Wilcox factory at Riversville, where hardware of certain kinds were made. Then it was harnessed again and turned the wheel of a hat factory. Just below it served the same purpose for the Hawthorne Woolen Mills and further at Pemberwick. It kept the Russell, Birdsell, and Ward factory, where bolts and nuts and such things were made. 
a-going. Just beyond the Byron Bridge to the south, another dam um, interfered with its way, and it was made to furnish the power of a mill there, whatever it was. The Byron, in its twistings and turnings, goes at intervals from New York to Connecticut, until at last from the Byron Bridge to the Sound, it is the dividing line between the two states. In the spring, it sometimes resumes its old-time force and volume, and then in the summertime, it runs almost dry. The Byram has done its duty in the line of work. Now it could again become useful, but in another way. It could be made beautiful and serve a purpose perhaps as effective and far-reaching in its results in a new field of endeavor. If it were tried, as it did when its waters dashed over the water wheels which turned the machinery of many mills. Greatly the property along its banks in Portchester and East Portchester would be benefited as well. That the Byram River must have been a very beautiful stream in the days of the Indians can be easily imagined. That was before the trees along its course were cut down and its water defiled by sewage. Hmm. It can never become what it was, but it can be made far more attractive instead of being repulsive as now. It remains only for Greenwich, meaning East Portchester and Port Chester, to join hands and to start with, out with a determination to improve its condition. The Byron River and the Mianus River are brothers. They both rise in New York State and from the same source, a spring or marsh in Middle Patent, or near there. They take different courses, however, as though opposed to each other. The Byram, or the, excuse me, the Bianus turns to the east and the Byram flows to the south, but both reach the sound in their way at the same time, but the Mianus takes a little longer route. Both run for a short distance in New York State. It is twisting, in its twisting and turning, the Mianus touches three towns, Middle Patent, Stamford and Greenwich. The Mianus gradually turns in its circuitous course to the southeast, and then makes almost a right angle and runs from there to directly south. The distance from the source of the two streams to the sound as the crows fly must be ten miles. In their twisting course, they traverse fifteen miles or more. Years ago, that is before steam assumed way, and when Greenwich was a struggling colony. These were busy rivers, with never an idle moment in their running. They played a most important part in the building up of Greenwich. They both were well harnessed by dams, and were made to turn the wheels of many mills. They gave the power to grist mills, cider mills, sawmills, an iron foundry, a wire mill, a paper mill, woolen mill, Bolton nut factories, telephones and telephone supplies, a hat mill, in fact, almost every kind of a mill at one time or another, were along their banks and several of each stream. Thus, perhaps, it can be realized of what importance they were and how they served the needs and purpose of the settlers and how greatly they helped in the town's development. We started out, more particularly, to tell of the Byron River. It turned at North Greenwich, the wheel of an old historic grist mill, the only one still standing of the five or more that did the grinding of the corn and wheat and other cereals for the colonists. It's now a tobacco factory. The Byram coursed 
on down and furnished the power for the Wilcox factory at Riversville, where hardware of certain kinds was made. Then it was harnessed again and turned the wheel of a hat factory. Just below it served the same purpose for the Hawthorne Woolen Mills, and further at Pemberwick it kept the Russell, Birdsell, and Ward factory, where bolts and nuts and such things were made. A going just beyond the Byram Bridge to the south, another dam interfered in the way, and it was made to furnish the power for a mill there, whatever it was. The Byram, in its twistings and turnings, goes at intervals from New York to Connecticut until at last from the Byram Bridge to the Sound. It is the dividing line between the two states. At the spring, or in the spring, it sometimes resumes its old-time force and volume, and then, in the summertime, it almost runs dry. The Byram has done its duty in the line of work. Now it could, again, be, become useful, but in another way. It, it could be made beautiful and serve a purpose, perhaps as effective and far-reaching, in its results in a new field of endeavor. If it were tried as it did when its water dashed over the water wheels which turned the machinery of so many mills. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors, and this is the section of the show in which we devote ourselves to reminding ourselves that not all has been perfect or ever will be in the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, that crimes do exist and have existed for a long time, sadly, but uh, also it is part of our ongoing observance of the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. This story, let's see it go, or it comes from the year 1908, and it's, uh, it was carried in the Greenwich News, Assault and Arson, hmm. James Watt charged with former wife with latter. The, uh, the alleged assault of 16-year-old Jenny Steinert by James Watt, the attempted burning of Terrace Inn by his wife, Jenny Watt, who has been running the hotel, her effort to commit suicide and possible sensational developments in other circles have woven themselves into a complicated story which might well furnish a plot for a Conan Doyle detective story. The tangle is being... Uh, Eludicated by the police and in the courts as rapidly as possible, and most of it has been made plain. What has been bound over by the borough court to the Superior Court in $2,000 bonds and now is in Bridgeport jail awaiting trial, and his wife came up for trial for arson in the borough court yesterday. The story opened as far as the public was concerned with the attempt by Peter Steinert the aged father of the assaulted girl, to find and shoot Watt. Oh, dear. He traveled to the borough last Friday, armed with a horse pistol, searching for Watt. He was finally dissuaded and told his story to the police. Friday night saw Watt safely lodged in jail by officers Talbot and Kramer. Meanwhile, his wife, almost crazed by the story of the accusation against her husband and by financial troubles, divided her time between visiting Watt in the police station and brooding in her room. All Sunday forenoon, she kept accosting Sergeant Talbot, who is acting chief of police in the place of Sheriff Rich, who has been allowed five weeks furlough, asking him questions with painfully 
which plainly denoted the wavering condition of her mind. At almost half-past two, Miss Tufel, an operator in the telephone office, received a frenzied message from Terrace Inn. It was Mrs. Watt who was talking, and she screamed across the wire that she had set fire to the house, and begged that Sheriff Rich be sent down to shoot her. The nature of the message and the voice uh, in which it was given was such that Miss Tufel went into a dead faint but was able to convey the gist of the message to another operator who immediately called up Boswell's drug store. Sergeant Talbot was standing in front of the store at the time and Mr. and, and William Boswell ran out and told him what it, he had heard. In the, in the light of Mrs. Watt's previous calls upon him, Andy did not believe that the woman had really done what she said she had done, but in order to preclude the possibility of a mistake, he hurried to Terrace Inn. He no sooner entered the place than he discovered that it had been set afire to. He ran out and rang in an alarm and hurriedly returned to the house, taking Adam Corner with him. Mr. Corner attempted to put out the fire, and Sergeant Talbot went in search of Mrs. Watt. The house, it was discovered, had been set fire to in seven different places. Several mattresses on beds in different rooms had been saturated with kerosene and ignited. A pile of excelsior under the kitchen sink had been similarly saturated and set fire to, while in another room, rags soaked in turpentine had been stuffed into cracks in the floor and lighted. The sergeant found Mrs. Watt in the dining room in a distracted condition, walking about in her bare feet. He taxed her to set fire to the place, and she confessed, interjecting a half-incoherent story of wrongs she had received in connection with the renting of the house. He saw that it was imperative to get her out of the place at once, but the floor was covered with broken glass, and he made her first... or made her first... Up, uh, tie uh, up the uh, her feet in oh tie up her feet in towels. He then took her to the police station. She was no sooner continued in the cell than she became violently ill, and it was plain that she had tried to poison herself. Doctor Burke was called and found that she had drank a quantity of kerosene oil. He administered the necessary medicine, and she soon recovered. The fire had not gained much headway, and the arrival of the volunteer and Amagerome fire company stopped it before it had done a great deal of damage. Mrs. Watt was formerly chef at the Kent House. She was an excellent cook and an able manager. Last fall, Mrs. Levy, who owns the terrace inn, leased the place to Mrs. Kane of New York City, who also has leased the towers in Sound Beach. Mrs. Kane put Mrs. Watt in charge of the place, and she soon put it on a good running basis. But owing to the financial depression, the business expected did not come, and Mrs. Watt soon found herself in most unpleasant financial straits. Matters were just about coming to a crisis when the accusation was brought against her husband. Wait was or Watt was tried on Monday. Mrs. Watt decided to help her husband in spite of all the evidence against him. The trial took all the forenoon and ended 
in his being bound over. Mrs. Watt's case came up on Thursday, but was continued to Saturday morning on the motion of prosecuting attorney Henry B. White in order that the commission might be appointed. The selectmen appointed, uh, let's see, appointed directors William L. Griswold and W.C. Piatti. Now, in the May 15, 1908 edition of the Greenwich News, there is more that is mentioned about uh, Mrs. Jenny Watt, and um, unfortunately, she was taken to jail. Mrs. Jenny Watt was sent to Bridgeport Jail last Monday, awaiting trial for arson in the Superior Court there. She left her property in charge of her attorney, William C. Runge. The case was adjourned in the Borough Court on Monday, that would be in Greenwich, in order that she might have an examination to her sanity by Drs. Bergen and Piatti. They could not find that she was insane, so her case was called off last Saturday. Mr. Runge handled the case in what is regarded by local lawyers as a rather clever manner. Um, let's see, part of this is, uh, is, is missing, but I'll do my best. He filed a demurrer, D-E-M-U-R-R-E-R, by the way, which was, as he expressed, overruled by Judge Burns and asked if he wished to plead for, let's see, waived his rights to do so. Jenny Burns, or let's see, Justice Burns, then held Mrs. Wanton $2,000 bonds for the Superior Court. Well, that's unfortunate, I think. Um, let's see what else we might be able to have. Let's skip over to the May 22nd edition, because this is a rather interesting story. Ah, yes, here we are. Uh, May 22, 1908, she was sent to asylum. Mrs. Jenny Watt acquitted on plea of insanity. Thursday afternoon in the Superior Criminal Court, the jury in the case of Mrs. Jenny Watt, who was charged with arson, returned a verdict of not guilty on account of insanity. The case came up at 2 o'clock and Sergeant Talbot, Adam Keener, D.A. Sullivan and Dr. Allen of Port Chester testified that they had seen the house afire in five or six places and that she had admitted to doing the deed. Dr. Godfrey C. Banks, the jail physician, and Dr. Wright testified that she had delusions, that she imagined that men of different nationalities were following her, that she feared someone would kill her, and that she was being persecuted. Attorney William C. Runge, defendant for the accused, cross-examined the two physicians and they admitted that Mrs. Watt was delusional at the present time and that she was insane. Judge Shumway charged the jury to render a verdict of not guilty and the jury in a few moments returned with a guilty, a verdict rather, of not guilty on account of insanity. Judge Shumway committed Mrs. Watt to the Middletown State Hospital for the Insane for four months. Mrs. Watt would have been committed to only two months to the hospital, but for the fact that if at the end of the two months she was not well, it would have necessitated the justice of the Supreme Court calling a special session of the Superior Court. Mr. Runge's theory that she was insane was substantiated, all through the trial by the state's witnesses. Well, thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the Tuesday, 6th of June, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. 
This weekly podcast is hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's that special kind of place that we call home. The Greenwich in Town for All Seasons Show podcast is once again made possible by Alexander Affiliates Incorporated, promoting environmentally responsible landscape architecture, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, if you want, you can contact me, and you can do so at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 13th of June, 2023. As always, I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating and preserving Greenwich, Connecticut's history. I look forward to being with you next week. Take care. Bye-bye now. 